I think that my dad probably listened to their bad rather. He read too much Calvin and Hobbes when I was growing up. The reason I think so is because he was the kind of dad who really enjoyed saying whenever you complained, yeah, but it builds character. It's not exactly a comforting thing to hear. adulthood. That's one of the most interesting things that you could say to somebody. It's interesting anyway from the perspective of somebody like me who enjoys characters and what they are and what they do and what a built character might be versus, you know, maybe a dull one. Since flat characters and boring characters are more common, if you're going to read something, it's more likely that uh, the imagination of a human being is inadequate to paint a picture of a person in a sufficiently human capacity. Which is why there's still a debate about the whole art reflecting reality or not question that people still have. We'll talk about does art reflect reality or does reality reflect art? Reflect art. It's one of those ongoing arguments, and it is because in some ways art reality is more interesting. In a lot of ways, it's not. That's why we still have stories and why we still like to tell stories. But in a lot of ways, reality is the more interesting part. It's the more interesting thing more complicated and so it's more interesting. We like to be challenged. So built characters, uh, an interesting idea. To build a character is fascinating. I'm making a cup of tea. It's a complicated idea though because a well-built character Is a it's a it's an interesting formula from a storytelling perspective. If you're reading a book or you're writing a book, then character development, what that even means, is complex. I think it's interesting. I think it's one of the most interesting questions in all of literature, in fact, because it's sort of, in my opinion, in what stories kind of rest on is whether your character development is strong. The phrase that we use instead of, well not instead of, one of the features that seems to be important in a well-built character, because it seems as if there's this feature isn't in all in characters, but one of the important features in a character who you want to follow during the story is the term sympathetic character, right? Okay, so that's one that we've all heard before, but what exactly does it mean? I mean, we understand what sympathy is in our day-to-day -day lives. <laughs> that's kind of a dangerous statement, isn't it? I mean, I don't think that we all do understand what sympathy means in our day-to-day -day lives. We just understand when to use the word. I mean, we use the word when somebody around us is feeling something strongly, usually negatively, 
we look at them and we say we're sympathetic to their situation. You know, there's a group of people over there suffering tragedy. We're sympathetic to their cause. This person over there who's 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 had some sort of death in their family. We're sympathetic to their situation. Sympathy. Sympathy is something that we understand when to do it, even if we don't understand necessarily what it means to us, which is a bigger subject that I'm interested in talking about. Instead, I want to talk about sympathetic characters. And it's too large a subject, I think, to tackle at all. Um, I don't really know what it means. I don't really know how to do it on purpose. As a writer, I don't know how to make a sympathetic character, and as a reader, I'm not 100% certain how to identify one. And in theory, I'm not entirely certain how to describe what a sympathetic character is, what that phrase even means. And so this, the purpose of this recording is partly for me to attempt to kind of like figure out before the end of it what a sympathetic what the term sympathetic character means. If I can, that'd be great. If I can't, that's what I expect. So I so far have developed three basic theories, three kind of schools that I'm using to sort of like examine the idea of what a sympathetic character might be. I've written them down in front of me, and I'm going to compare two characters from two different books. One who I think is sympathetic, and one that I think is not. I'm not going to say which one I think is sympathetic until the end. Um, if you're familiar with the books, maybe you can have your own guesses, or by the end, before the end, if you have your own ideas, you can guess too. But by the end, I, I will I will say which one I think is sympathetic, and then I will say why. But in the meantime, I'm just going to compare them according to these three schools of thought that I have identified as per potential schools through which you may potentially sort of like look at characters and say, yes, this is a, a sympathetic sort, and this one isn't. Okay, so the three schools of thought, as far as I am concerned, for today's argument, are... Prescriptive is a character, is, is the, 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 there is the method for arriving at and, and diagnosing the sympathy level of a character. Is it prescriptive? Is it instinctive? Or is it synthetic? And I'll explain what I mean by those right now. I'm going to start with prescriptive because in some ways it's the easiest, without actually being the easiest, and then I'm going to talk about instinctive, and then I'm going to talk about synthetic, which maybe is the hardest to explain, um, but uh, I think it, I don't know, it's kind of a combination of the first two. So, I have two books sitting in front of me. Um, one is called The Anubis Fates by Tim Powers, and one is called Leviathan Wakes by J James S.A. Corey. They're both books that I really, really like. I enjoy both of them. I reread them. And I think that both of them have strong characters. Notice I didn't say sympathetic because they're not exactly the same thing. 
They both have strong characters and good plot and good stories and good worlds, solid books, solid, solid books, competently executed books, and competent writers. Joe Miller is a character from Leviathan Wakes. Uh, he's one of the main characters. He is a he is an over the hill um, detective working for a police department on a one of the one of the great big rocks in the asteroid belt of the our solar system. And his story fall is about him pursuing an investigation into the life of a young woman who is a central character in the, is it a central element, let's put it that way, a central element in the series beginning there and going forward, and, and his relationship to that character. The Anubis Gates, oh, um, the second character that I'm going to look at is Brendan Doyle, who is a character in the Anubis Gates. Uh, Brendan Doyle is a literature professor from, I think, UCLA, but I can't remember for certain, who participates in a magical adventure th through time where he interacts with various historical figures during the early 1800s, such as Coleridge and Byron, and he basically survives. He is a man from 1983, and he gets sent back in time, and he's not exactly equipped to cope with living in the 18, early 1800s when he gets stranded and spends most of the book essentially de dealing with the circumstances that arise from simply just trying, trying not to, trying not to not, trying not to um, die when. He is in the 1800s where the medicine isn't very good and when it just so happens that there are a bunch of gypsy sorcerers who are trying to kill him. So those are the two characters. I've got Brendan Doyle on the one hand and I've got Joe Miller on the other. Now I'm going to examine them using my three models. The first model I'm going to use is the prescriptive model. The prescriptive model of creating or finding sympathetic characters, right? Now, here's, here's, here's where this is coming from, this idea of prescription, okay? So the word prescription, I guess, it's where you, you say ahead of time, here's the rules, this is the system, you're going to follow it, and you're going to produce something. That's prescription. If you go to school for this, then a lot of the curriculum that you are taught is prescriptive. Not all of it is because, I mean, that's the advantage of having a human being as a teacher. But a lot of it is prescriptive because that's what they have to do. They, they don't know what where what's in your head already or where you're coming from, and so a teacher has to basically say, "Here are the rules. We're going to follow these. We're going to look at stuff, and we're going to judge stuff according to these rules, and we're going to move forward." In the event of trying to make a sympathetic character, some of the prescriptions that you might say you need in order to um, create a sympathetic character are things like informing their backstory with with relatable events, right? 
Yeah, here's something that Joan Miller and Brendan Doyle have in common. They both have a, uh, a uh, wife that they lost in some relatable circumstance. In the case of Joan Miller, his wife divorced him over work. And in the case of Brendan Doyle, they were, he and his wife were on a motorcycle ride and crashed and she died. Those are the kinds of things that are relatable Ironically, because they are the kinds of things that we don't want to experience ourselves. That's one of the kind of like voyeuristic fun parts of any story is that these characters get to live out things that we ourselves don't want to experience and so they get to. Which is kind of, you know, that's one of the cool parts, as it were, about stories. Upsetting things and watching people deal with upsetting things is for some reason interesting to the human to people, audiences. We like to watch other people cope with sad stuff. So that's one thing, it's a prescription. You say, okay, put in their backstory, give them something that is definitely upsetting. And, and then he, they, the audience will definitely will look at that and go, oh, they'll latch on and go, oh, that's sad. How are these people gonna cope? That's a relatable thing. That's way of it's a one of the prescriptive tricks of making a character sympathetic. Here's here's another example. You give them a job that definitely you you, you can you've seen people in it and you can see that there's trials related to it. Okay, so it's something that we would potentially envision ourselves in. It's more fun to write about a character who has a slightly atypical job. But their job shouldn't be so strange that nobody can understand necessarily, okay, so to, in order to be sympathetic. Give them a, something that they are doing with their lives, that they're pursuing with their lives that people have seen, but they're not necessarily, uh, but, and, and the, the people have seen so they can envision themselves as in that job. So. Joe Miller is, as I said, he's an over-the-hill detective. A lot of people can sort of envision themselves as being in middle age and have seen detectives working on TV and, or, or maybe you are a detective, it's not, uh, that's not as common, but you've definitely heard of them. You have an idea about what they do. Brendan Doyle is a literature professor, as I said, most people have seen professors working. Some people have seen literature professors working. Lots of people potentially are those things, right? So it, it, you've given them, this is, these are rules. You say, okay, so these characters now have this element in their backstory that definitely is something, it, it's sad and it makes it so that you can, you can Envision yourself coping with something similar. They're they're in their day-to-day -day life. They are pursuing this that this thing that is uh, it's consuming them, and it definitely gives them something to do, right? Then another thing that you want to do is when you've built that. This is another piece of the prescription. You've gotten that far, and then you start to say, okay, so in the circumstances that I'm going to write about in my story, I need to lay in front of them some strange situation 
that causes this story to happen. And I need to lay it in front of them in such a way that my audience can say, okay, given those other prescriptions about this person, I can envision myself making similar decisions. That is a prescriptive way of describing these characters. So for example, Joe Miller is, ex is, is coping with a, a whole bunch of different circumstances. The investigation that he's pursuing for the other character in the book um, is related to what to to a conspiracy to cover up first contact in a sense that then there's there's a war that's related to it okay so that's that's atypical but we've all sort of imagined what that kind of thing might be like Brendan Doyle is dealing with time travel and gypsy sorcerers a little bit more difficult to cope with but we've seen that enough in pop culture that it it's I think that the audience that absorbs the book, The Anubis Gates, will probably be happy to accept um, that as a premise and say, okay, I, can, I have run that thought experiment and thought to myself, this is how I might deal with something like that. So these are, there's some three, there's, there's three, it's, it's more complicated than that, but there's three prescriptions that you might put into creating a character that's sympathetic. The, the rule would say, do it this way. And then you would be able to create, hypothetically, you'd be able to create a sympathetic character. Give them something relatable in their backstory. Give them something that they do with their time that is relatable. And then, and then show them coping with something that isn't necessarily relatable, but is, is uh, relatable enough. Alright, so... That's a tool. That's a that's a way you can you can look at a lot of characters and you can say, does it does it follow the rules? Is, are there rules and does it follow them? There are rules. There are a lot of characters you can look at. You can decide whether it falls they follow them or not. Now, there's this, here's this second school that I diagnosed to create sympathetic characters, and I'm calling it the instinctive school of thought. The way I would describe the instinctive school of thought is a little bit more amorphous. It has to be because it's sort of the opposite of the prescriptive school of thought. If there are a set of rules that you just need to follow in order to create characters that are sympathetic, but there are characters who, even when you outline them, they are not as sympathetic as some other characters might be, then what else is going on? There has to be something else going on, because you can sometimes just outline the character and see that it is following all the rules, and then you get to the end of the book and realize you didn't empathize with that character very much. You didn't sympathize with what was going on with them. You didn't really care. So there must be something else going on. The thing that might be going on, I think, is not so much the kind of like character building elements that you might use if you were like figuring out your character ahead of time. You know, if I was or defining the character necessarily, 
describing the character to somebody else. They're all kind of a similar exercise. If a character has been built well, then uh, when the writer has finished putting it into the story, and then the story is absorbed by an audience somewhere, if that audience then tries to describe that character to someone else to try and get them to read the book, if the character was designed well, then the audience member's description of that character ought to be really similar to how the author would have described that character before writing the story or while rewriting the story at whatever stage because authors often have that exercise they will often go and essentially do like a, a character profile almost like their dating profile of the character and where they came from and likes and dislikes and and just a variety of things that sort of help the author to sort of keep that character consistent it's an aid to storytelling it's very useful and that ends up being the prescriptive description of that character. Now, there are things that would have been mostly left out of a really quick thumbnail sketch of the character that you end up putting into the story because of various decisions you made while making your thumbnail sketch. So as for instance, There's this repeated description of Joe Miller as being hangdog. He's got this hangdog expression on his face. I wasn't sure how I could envision that visually, but I knew what that felt like emotionally. Um, Brendan Doyle, he is over the course of the book gradually uh, grows, he gradually grows more and more worn down and broken. He essentially, he has like pneumonia and he gets shot in the head and there's all kinds of crazy stuff that happens to him. And his description gets uh, more and more haggard and withered. It's necessary for characterization and it permits me, while I'm reading, to just sort of be become, gain an emotional profile of these people, to create an emotional profile of these people, to sort of envision what they might be like. You can see how that's a slightly different thing. I mean, if we think back to people that we know in, in, our, in the real world, we think about what they look like but we also think about how they make us feel and how their expressions make us feel and how they seem to feel that informs their expressions, what, what they are probably feeling that makes them look that way or whatever, why they dress that way. But we think about whys. We think about how they are, how they might be, not just how they look. When you're just writing a character down in a book, An author has a lot of tools to try and draw from a reader uh, the same kind of emotional relationship. We form these emotional relationships instantaneously with real people, 
be overwhelming to attempt to simulate the same uh, experience just describing how somebody looks because there's something more complicated than just looking when you look at a human being and you sympathize with that person. And so as a, uh, when you're writing down a character's description for a reader, a, re a writer has many tools to decide how to draw and to create an emotional relationship. You can't just describe them in absolute perfect detail, because first of all, language doesn't work that well, second, because it would be terribly dull to read, and third, it wouldn't accomplish what you wanted to accomplish. You can't just have the details. You gotta choose which details will, you gotta choose the details that will cause the emotional relationship that you're after. Joe Miller has an awful lot of characterizations that are included, that James S. A. Corey includes. Things like his shoulders slumping at, slumping at particular moments, or the way he scratches under his pork pie hat, or the, uh, the way he sort of lingers on looking at certain visuals. That, and then James S. A. Corey doesn't necessarily uh, explain the thought process, he just has these little gestures in there. And when James S. A. Corey wrote those scenes, probably just made, he made those decisions based on, um, based on instinct, based on just sort of like, well, okay, if that, this is, it's an this little emotion right here is an important thing to try and like create the relationship between the reader and this character. With Brendan Doyle, um, there are a lot of other things, like for instance, Brendan Doyle. Uh, since he gets thrown back in time and then trapped there unexpectedly there's lots of instances when Brenton Doyle needs to realize that he can't get back and he needs to do things like make a plan for his next five days or something like that or decide how whether he's going to just cope with being in the past or not. And the way that the ways that he copes are things like he has just escaped from the gypsies, he's on his way to London, he's bartered for some fresh 18th century, no, not 18th, 19th century clothes. And then there's a mental monologue that um, Tim Powers includes to describe James as to describe Brendan Doyle's thought process, and Brendan Doyle essentially thinks to himself, well, maybe I can go and meet up with all these historical figures. I, I can't really directly influence them, but it wouldn't be so, so bad to be, make friends with them and maybe give them suggestions about where they're going to go next, and, and maybe I will uh, make friends with them, and, and then maybe they, they'll pay me for my hip tips and things, and he's very... From there's, he's very accepting. He's easy to accept his plight, and I'm not sure if I would be any different if I discovered that I was in 1805 or 1807 or whenever that particular scene was. I can't remember which it was. 
and I realized that I wasn't going to be able to get back to 1983 if I would just sort of go, well, time to accept it and move on. I don't know how I would be exactly. Alright, so... The instinctive, this instinctive school of thought is a little bit harder to explain, but you kind of see what it is. It's got to do with, it's, you can't, the, it's prescriptive school, you can sort of like describe the character divorced from the book a little bit. The instinctive school here, you can't really do that. It ha it's situational, it's based on how the character is responding to the new, to circumstances inside of the book. as they arise. So this third idea that I've got here, I'm calling this the synthetic school. And I think that it's sort of like a mix of two things. So for instance, yeah, synthetic as in it's, it's, it's partly the natural approach, it just is what it is and partly forced. That's how, what a synthetic is. It takes something natural and it forces a new, sh new quality on it. So the synthetic approach, combining the two. Um, so Joel Miller is this detective. And he gets laid off. He gets laid off because he's over the hill because the city has broken down, it's wartime. He is unable to follow rules and the boss lady doesn't want to deal with that anymore. Because he is who he is, and he's this driven, obsessive kind of person, because of the background that would have been written he has a variety of options, and he runs through them in his head. But he runs through them in his head after he has already adopted one. The one that he decided to adopt was to run through his savings, sit at a coffee shop, and pursue the investigation that he was getting fired over. But he runs through his other options because they are the arguments that would have been raised by an audience looking at him. An audience looking at him might have said something like, well, why didn't he do this? Why didn't he do that? Why didn't he go and try and join? Because they're privatized police forces in, in this particular universe, so why didn't he go and try and find another privatized police force? Why didn't he go and become a bouncer? Why didn't he do this? Why didn't he do that? Why didn't he become a private investigator? Well, he did kind of become a private investigator. And the answer is, in his character, he made a decision to pursue the investigation that he was fired over because he is this super driven, over-the-hill detective who is regretting, he has many life regrets, and had gotten in his head that this was an important investigation, and he decided that it would be important to pursue it. Brandon Doyle, there are circumstances that are 
complicated that lead to this particular thing. But at one point, he finds that he has started to inhabit the body of a different character in the book. Someone that he used to know. That he used to know well. Has been a, a character throughout the book and that he used to know well. The essence, personality, soul, whatever, of the other character, whose name is Benner. Benner has been transferred to this other, other character. And that body with Benner's personality has been killed. Brendan Doyle is now inhabiting Benner's body and just sort of accepts and moves on with with this new circumstance. He doesn't really think about where his body is. He doesn't really think about what's going on. He doesn't really spend much time really being befuddled or weirded out. He just goes, oh well, and moves forward because of his character, hypothetically. He um, is the kind of person who just sort of like accepts and moves on. It's been established. It has been established throughout the course of the book that this is what he does. So that's what he does. It seems very strange. That seems like a weird thing to experience and he goes on with it. He just does what he does. This is, we, we say, we, he receives the new stimulus and then just sort of goes, okay, this is the next thing. Time to move on. He's very quick about it. There is a strong thread of fate in both of these books. Everybody tells Joe Miller who he is and where he fits, constantly telling him that he's over the hill and washed out. Brendan Doyle is in the past living out a time period that he is extremely educated in. He knows the characters involved. And he just knows how it's all going to end. Joe Miller decides to buck against his fate. Go against what other people say that he is. And Brendan Doyle spends the entire book sitting around, well, he, not sitting around, but Kind of like rolling with fate as it deals him things that he could not have predicted even though he knows the ends because nobody knows all the details i think that one important element in a sympathetic character is Responding to what human beings want is attracting the want of people. 
people read books to be entertained and they read books to watch other to watch characters live out situations that would otherwise be impossible and so an important part in creating a sympathetic character is to give them a quality that makes them so that me, that I, the reader, I want to watch this person. Something has to be attractive about them. And I think that one of the most difficult one of the most difficult things about being alive as a person is 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 just doing what you want. I want just just doing what you want because it's, we live in a world full of rules because where there where there's not where there's not bureaucratic rules where there's not legal rules there's physical ones and so I think that one of the most attractive things that we ever watch in people in characters and in other people is that they appear to be able to choose assertively and follow through and maybe the circumstances that they fall into are bad but they got there themselves and I think that that's probably one of the most attractive reasons and one of the most attractive things that creates a sympathetic character sympathetic there's an element of being invited to to watch in sympathy you know sympathy is partly in that the relationship it's sim to be sympathetic means to to place yourself in that person's situation but there's another part of it which is to want to place yourself in that person's situation and a character who takes agency in their own life I think is one of the most attractive things in a character a character who makes decisions and follows through even if they're bad my opinion is that Joe Miller is a more sympathetic character than Brendan Doyle Brendan Doyle definitely follows all of the prescriptive steps many of the instinctive ones but ultimately falls down on this important point that I didn't really talk about because I think it's that sort of the crux of this synthetic view that Brendan Doyle accepts his fate and Joe Miller accepts his fate but chooses to accept his fate. Agency. I don't know. I think agency is probably the most attractive thing in a character. I'm looking at my story and I'm going to make my own choices. Suck it up.